Good morning. What do you think we're going to turn this morning? Well, oh, well, so much for that one. Who are we going to look at, do you think? Yeah, very good, Moses. Actually, we're going to start off by looking at the nation of Israel, and then the second half we'll get to Moses. Turn to Exodus chapter 1. We'll continue in our series on character studies in the Old Testament. And uh, just to kind of adjust your chronological thinking, remember now, we're 400 years later here when we get into the uh, narrative. 400 years, roughly, since uh, we last saw Joseph. Long time. We're not going to read all the sections here. We're just going to read a little pieces here and there to get the flavor of what's going on. Most of you know the story. Uh, Beginning in Exodus 1, we'll start in verse 6. And Joseph died. All his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burden. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And then turn over now to uh, chapter 2, verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel. And God acknowledged them. Okay. Good thing they cried out, isn't it? Boy, it looks like God forgot, huh? Good thing they reminded him. Isn't that good? See, it says they cried out. They had to shout real loud, you know. I wonder what God was doing all that time. 400 years. You know, people tend to forget, maybe even after 400 years, God had forgotten. You know, the funny thing is we read this passage, I think, often, the way it's phrased here, and it sounds like in the words, uh, you know, oh, that's right. Yeah, the Israelites down there in Egypt. You know, is that what I hear down there? It's not like that. But sometimes we think that way about God, don't we? We think of God as uh, reactive, like us. You know, reactive means, right? You know, something happens and then we go, oh no, now what do I do? Right? And we sometimes, I think, think of God like us, being like us. Of course, the big word nowadays, you're not supposed to be reactive. You're supposed to be what? Proactive. That's right. Act beforehand. Now, if God had been proactive, maybe this wouldn't have happened, huh? (laughs) 
it is true i confess it too you know we often i think think of god as sort of something comes into our lives and it's just as much a big surprise to him as it is to me you know and so we cry out lord now look what happened you know what do we do now and of course we do give him some credit we recognize that he's smarter and stronger than us you know and so we'll pray to him and hope he has a better idea than we do let me tell you god is not reactive he isn't even proactive he's better than that okay and we need to remember that we we lose sight of that listen he directs history so that all of his plans are fulfilled perfectly every single one of them listen to this from isaiah i am god and there is no other i am god and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done now you say well okay that just foretelling the future yeah but read on saying my counsel shall stand and i will do all my pleasure indeed i have spoken it i will also bring it to pass i have purposed it and i will do it isn't that good now that's the god of the bible okay he doesn't just know the end from the beginning he has plans he has designs and every single one of them is going to come to pass sometimes in spite of us okay but don't worry i'm not going to mess up his plans you can't he is going to achieve his purposes every one of them so it doesn't mean we don't have free will we we make bad choices all the time it's just that god is so great that he can use our bad choices and mistakes to turn it around for good we saw that just now in joseph's life right was that a good thing that joseph's brothers uh, cruelly treated him by throwing him into the pit and selling him as a slave no it was a terrible thing and they were accountable for it but nobody could put it better than joseph you meant it for evil but what god meant it for good i want you to notice that he, he didn't say god intended it for good or pardon me used it for good god meant it for good he saw what they were going to do and so before they were even born he decided i'll use it this way for good in everybody's life not just joseph but the whole nation of israel now that's the god of the bible okay and it, it applies we're thinking on a very grand scheme right now you know to the world it applies to our country but it applies to our lives as well your life my life individually god has a plan and he knows where he's going and he knows how he wants to get there and so since he knows and i don't it's best to cooperate with him right i think so now it's funny we there's nothing wrong with talking this way about god being reactive in fact we do it all the time in worship don't we breaking of bread i've, I've done it many times we, we talk as if god looked on our our in fact our, it's in hymns he looks on our terrible situation and he came up with the idea of the cross and jesus died for us and saved our souls we talk that way that's okay because that's the way we perceive it you see but we know the bible talks about jesus as the lamb slain when before the foundation of the world yeah you see god's a lot greater than we realize 
Praise God. You know, this is going to sound terrible maybe when I say it. You realize God had something much greater in mind on the cross besides saving your soul? What? That's right. You know what? If you want to summarize one of God's greatest overarching purposes in everything, you know what it is? It's to reveal himself to his creation. That's it. To reveal himself. That doesn't sound very exciting to you, I guess, does it? It is. It's the greatest thing in the universe. For, to know God, for, to, to understand him, to see his ways. And listen, the Bible says God is love. <clears throat> That's how loving he is. God's love is so incomprehensible. And he wanted to show it to us. That's where it started. He wanted to demonstrate his love to his creation. Well, how do you do it? He, he created a race of beings called people who were the worst things in the universe. We rebelled against them. We hated him. He sent his son. What did we do? We beat him. We killed him. The most unlikely prospects for the love of God, right? But God wanted to show how great his love was. So those are the ones he loved. And in fact, in the very act of us killing his son, he demonstrated his love in that Jesus was dying for us at the time to save our soul. Isn't that incredible? Only God could do something like that. It was all planned beforehand. To show his love. And so it's that way here in Exodus as well. Uh, even though it sounds like, you know, we've had 400 years of uh, the, the train going off the rails, you know, and, and now it's going to get back on now that uh, they alert God to the problem. That's not the way it happened. So that's what I want to look at this morning. He not only has wonderful, infinitely higher purposes than we could imagine, and he not only accomplishes every one of them, but he gets there by using the most improbable means imaginable. And that's the key. Because too often, and I'm number one, I'll confess first, we think, okay, this is what God, this is what needs to happen in my life, this is the way to do it. If that's going to happen, this is the way it's going to be done. You ever done that? And, too often, our way is not God's way. In fact, he says that. My ways are not your ways, he says. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways. So we need to be careful. I need to be careful. There is a way that seems right to a man. I can relate to, you know, it just, this is the way to do it. But what? The end thereof is the ways of death. So we've got to be careful about leaning on our own understanding, as Proverbs 3 says. So we need to be careful as believers not to rely on, number one, what we would naturally expect him to do or how he should do it. And secondly, and this is linked with that, we need to be careful not to lean on what we would prefer him to do and how he should do it. You ever done that? Boy, I have. Since he, and secondly, since he will accomplish his purposes, he will do so either, one, in spite of us, uh, and he can use our disobedience still for his glory. We saw the cross. We saw the life of Joseph. Or he'll do so with our willing co- cooperation. I'd rather do it that way. Okay, well, maybe you're sitting here and saying, oh, huh, I'm not interested. You know, that's cooperating with God, doing God's will. You know, what a boring subject. 
you know, uh, I want to go to my grave having had fun. You know, what's, what's, I don't know if it's around anymore, the old uh, license plate, he who dies with the most toys wins, you know. You can go and joke around like that right now, but I'll tell you, there's going to come a time when you're going to look back and wish you'd done it different. You know, think of the rich man in hell. Jesus described that for us. And Jesus said to that guy, remember that in your life, you had your good things. Past tense, they're all done. So we're going to look at the, the, this uh, area of uh, God's dealing with us in the life of Moses and how he uh, responded the, uh, the first way to working out God's plan with his own ideas. And then God set him straight. But first, I want to finish up on the nation of Israel here because I don't want us to think that uh, God had gone to sleep at the switch or something. Turn back to Genesis chapter 15. And let's see, indeed, if God was uh, had forgotten the nation and was kind of caught off guard here. Genesis 15. We're way back now, three generations uh, before Joseph and Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 13. God is speaking to Abraham, and he says, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them. Wow. He's already, he said it would happen. And they will afflict them 400 years. Wow. That's incredible, huh? He already told them. Isn't that amazing? So no, God had not forgotten. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation, they shall return. You go, look at the uh, genealogy in First Chronicles. It's exactly the fourth generation that, that uh, leaves Egypt. It's wonderful. Uh, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then he goes on to say, uh, on the verse 18, the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your descendants I have given this land and he describes the land and the people that are in it. Listen, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So this is interesting because when we read this, first of all, we see it wasn't a surprise. God had this planned all along and it was going to be 400 years. Okay? So he wasn't taken by surprise. What's interesting is God had other things going on. That's the point. And that's the way it always is. We need to realize, what's the expression? God has bigger fish to fry. Okay? He, he is sovereign over the entire world. And too often, you know, I focus on my little life, you know, and what's going on right now here. And, and, it, and it may look like, oh, man, things are out of control. What's going on here? You know, God slipped up. No. You don't see the big picture. God does. Okay, and that's the time to trust him. That really glorifies him when I can look at my life and think, "Uh oh, something's wrong here. But I say, but no, the Lord's in control. I know he's doing the right thing here. I trust him. So imagine being a Jew at that time in slavery in Egypt. You know, you're looking around. Boy, I heard what was it 400 years ago? God said something about how we were going to get this land up north. You know what's going on? One of the things that's going on, God says right here. It's wonderful. He says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
There it is. That's one of the reasons God waited 400 years. By the way, there's an illustration of the long suffering of God, huh? These guys are wicked already. He's going to give them another 400 years, 400 years. You know how long we've been a nation? A little over 200. This is twice that. That's a long time to be patient, isn't it? So let's step back and look at the big picture. God's waiting on the Amorites and uh, there are going to be some that are still going to repent. What's interesting to me is the reason I read that whole section. Do you see the list of uh, all the people in the land? The Amorites is only one of them. So apparently the sin of the rest of these guys was full. And it was, by the way, the archaeologists looked at the stuff they were doing. But the Amorites weren't there yet. And so he's going to give them another 400 years. And in fact, if we were, were to stand back and now that we know what happened and we can read God's word, we can see that God was accomplishing all kinds of things in waiting that 400 years besides waiting on the sin of the Amorites to get full. Think about it. God had promised the land of Canaan uh, to Abraham and his descendants. There were people there at the time, weren't there? Now, he could have kicked them all out, I guess, and given the whole place to Abraham and his kids. But at the time, that's pretty pretty roomy, isn't it? Huh? Just for one family, come on. And so it's wonderful. You realize what he did? He started with one guy and he made a nation out of him. Isn't that neat? He said he would and he did it. And he did it down in the incubator of Egypt. So they wouldn't mess around with what was going up in Canaan. Let that you know, run its course. And then when the sin is ripened up there, and in the meantime, God has created a nation over 400 years. Now it's time to move them up in there. Isn't that great? See, he has, he has bigger purposes. Uh, and then we're going to see it later when it comes to taking them out. He doesn't just say, okay, time to go, you know, pack up, follow the yellow brick road up to uh, Canaan. He takes a sweet time about it. And we have 10 plagues to go through. Why does he do that? Because he has bigger purposes than just getting the people from here to there. And in fact, you know what it is? It's all over the place. It, it appears a dozen times. Here's the phrase, that they may know that I am the Lord. Now, isn't that interesting? There it is again. You see, he's interested in more than just my suffering and slavery, which he, he, he did care about and was compassionate about, but he had grander purposes to reveal himself, not only to the nation of Egypt, but to Israel. Don't you think it'd be kind of encouraging to see what kind of a God you had after all that stuff? Huh? What did you say they walk out with great possessions? Imagine walking out of probably the most powerful kingdom in the world and you walk out with spoils, you're heaped with gold and silver, and you didn't lift a finger to get them. That's pretty good, huh? You think that God might be able to take care of you, you know, in whatever circumstance uh, comes up? Do they believe it? Well, we're going to see. So he was revealing himself. And not only, you say, well, why the slavery? I mean, you know, that's terrible. Well, it's kind of like the cross, you know. God could have started with them with nice, ordinary. They were all a bunch of yuppies down in Egypt, you know, middle class, lower, uh, uh, upper income citizens. And they leave suburbia and head up, you know, to a little uh, vine covered uh, cottage in Jerusalem. But he didn't want to do that. It's like the cross. He started with the most improbable situation. Here they are, downtrodden, a bunch of slaves, powerless, helpless, hopeless. And by his strong arm alone, and nothing else 
He, he snatches them out of the greatest kingdom on the earth. In fact, defeats it and takes them up north. Isn't that better? Yeah, he got more glory that way. Okay, so now we really wish we could do that all the time when we're in the middle of a circumstance. Wouldn't it be nice? You know, when, when there's trouble in my life and, thing, and, and, when I'm, and now let me qualify this. I'm not talking when there's consequences of sin in my life. In other words, I messed up and I'm suffering for it. That's real simple. I can figure that one out. Okay, the reason I have trouble is because I sinned. I'm not talking about that. Just when a trial or some difficulty comes in that I can't be held accountable for. It would be nice to say, Lord, could you give me a peek, you know? How is this working out? How does this fit into the big grand design of things? Would it be nice to be able to do that? Would it? Would it be right? No. You know what we're saying at that point? Uh, <clears throat> you know, it's kind of like God's got his plans. We come over and look over his shoulder. Uh, let me check that. Make sure that looks okay, you know? I'm not sure I approve of that. Maybe we ought to change a little bit over here, you know? Particularly that part, you know, where I almost get killed. <laughs> I've used this illustration before. It's kind of a takeoff on one I've read about, but God is the great des- uh, master designer and he's weaving a tapestry. You've seen tapestries before. They're beautiful with all the different colored threads. You ever seen the back of them? They look terrible. All these loose threads, it just, it's just a mess. And God is the designer. Number one, he knows what the picture is that he's making. He knows what it's going to look like. We're like an ant on the backside on a thread. And we look at a thread and we say, that's ugly. There is no way, even if he did show us, how we could comprehend the whole picture as an ant. We just, we just can't take it in. And so it is not only with our lives, but the, the course of events in the, in the world. Only God can understand what he's doing and why he's doing it. But I'll tell you, when it's all said and done, no one could improve on it. In fact, if you were honest about it, say, praise God, it couldn't have done better in a better way. Okay, so uh, when it appears that God is making a mistake, the mistake is in our thinking, right? Uh, I like the verse in James. I like, I like a phrase in it. You know, you know, the uh, section is he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. I like that. God does. You see, I don't. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will buy and sell and make this or that. If the Lord wills, that's the key. Okay. So that's the look at Israel. Now uh, we'll look at Moses here. So let's go back to uh, Exodus 2. And let's see how he fits into all of this. And just stand back. Look, we all know the story, but Moses didn't know how it was going to turn out. The Israelites didn't know how it was going to turn out. So put yourself in their shoes and in particular in Moses' shoes, okay? And we're just going to read a little section here. Uh, Exodus 2, being in verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, then he went out uh, to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. 
So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striping, striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. And there he uh, meets his wife, marries her. They have a kid. <clears throat> and he lives there for 40 years. 40 years. Moses was 40 when he left Egypt. He was 80 when he came back. God took him out of the scene for 40 years. And uh, we saw the verse that we read earlier, 23 through 25. And then chapter 3, verse 1, this is the last verse we'll read. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Okay. Moses has a false start here. You notice that? And uh, it's helpful. I love the way God um, correlates Scripture with Scripture. He does so in the book of Acts, and he gives us a little clue as to what was going on with Moses. Turn to Acts chapter 7. You ever want a nice brief account of the history of Israel, uh, at least a large part of the Old Testament, read Stephen's message to the Jews here in uh, Acts chapter 7. And he talks about this, and he tells us something that we didn't know before. About Moses. <clears throat> uh, Acts 7, we'll begin at verse 20. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And uh, he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Here's the, here's the new key. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and, and you know the rest of the story. He uh, uh, ran away and hid. So that's interesting. Stephen tells us here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Moses was ready to start leading his people out of the land at this point. In fact, he, when he went to the two guys arguing, he expected that they would understand that's what's going on. Isn't that interesting? Now, uh, turn back to Exodus. I don't know if uh, God had somehow maybe revealed to him kind of a general picture, you know, that he indeed was going to be the, the leader. That could be. In either case, Moses was convinced he was the guy. Now, as I said, put yourself in Moses' shoes. You're going you're gonna to lead your, your brethren out of this powerful nation who doesn't want to let you go. You remember reading that? Remember? The Egyptians talked among themselves and they said, look, let's make them a bunch of slaves so they don't just hightail it out of here. 
So, what's the way that seemeth right to a man? You're Moses. How are you going to get the people out? There you go. That's right. Rebellion. A revolution. What's interesting to me is what, uh, the, um, what Moses says when he comes to the two. I don't know if you picked up on it. Here in chapter 2. He says, uh, why are you striking your companion? He said, well, there's not a lot in there. Well, it depends on where your thinking is. Uh, he's reminding them that they're brothers. They're, they're fellow Hebrews. And he's saying, why are you a Hebrew striking another Hebrew? We should be together in this thing. And I'm about ready to hear the big speech about how, look, if we all unite and pull together, we can overthrow these guys and get out of here. Okay? You can go down through history and uh, everyone from Stalin to Hitler and even good leaders, that's what they do. They, they talk to the masses and appeal to the fact that, you know, workers of the world unite, you know, or whatever the group may be. You all have this in common. Instead of fighting each other, let's pull together and we can do anything. I think that's where Moses is going with this, you know, just the way he started the previous day by killing the Egyptian. That would be the way that would seem right to a man anyway, wouldn't it? Well, uh, it's very interesting. The word of God is, is so wonderful. Whenever he includes little details in a narrative, look at them. They're there for a reason. And in this overarching history of the nation of Israel and the overview of the, the biography of Moses, God puts all these little details about the events within these two days here that tell us something about where Moses was spiritually. Look, first it says in verse 12, he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Look at all that. Why does God tell us all that? What does it sound like? Does it sound like a man walking by faith? <laughs> no. In fact, instead of faith, you've got furtiveness, fear, and fleeing in this passage. He's furtive. It says he looked this way, and then he looked that way. Nobody around, you know? That's not, that's not God's way of doing things, is it? And so you can see he's, he's taking things into his own hands, which is interesting to me. You know, often we feel that way, don't we? When we, when we take control, you ever, you ever experience that kind of fear? You know, like, uh oh, now I'm in control. I've taken it away from God and who knows what's going to happen. You know? So he's acting furtively. That's why God tells us all that stuff to show us where Moses is coming from. Then he, he hides the body. And then it says in verse 14, he feared. He's afraid with good reason. Pharaoh's going to be after him in a little bit. And then finally he fled. He ran away. You see, there's a way that seems right, but it's not God's way. <clears throat> and so what uh, the reason I read chapter three, verse one, because it is so eloquent. It says so much about what God is doing with his man. Let's read it again. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert 
and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Pardon my chuckling. But here is this great man, by the way, of Egypt. He was way up there in the social standing in Egypt, right? You know, raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Here he is for the last 40 years, a nobody in the desert, but not just in the desert. Did you notice? In the back of the desert. That's great. You see, God is molding him into the kind of leader he wants him to be. There's a wonderful verse in Numbers. It says this. This is after Moses has matured, so to speak, into the kind of man that God can use. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Is that interesting? You know where he learned that? Yeah, in the desert, on the backside of the desert. So God took Moses out of Egypt. He, he used his fleeing in this case. Okay. He added the desert, some sheep and 40 years, and he produced what he needed. Not a great military strategist or warrior, but a great shepherd. The ultimate elder. Not full of himself or proud, but one who would esteem others better than himself. He lived out Philippians 2 before Paul even wrote it. He was devoted to his God before everything else, hating sin and loving righteousness, willing to tell his people whatever God wanted them to hear and willing to take their abuse when they didn't like it, which is most of the time. A man who was willing to spend another 40 years in the desert with people who accused him of every false motive, but whom he would love as his own children. That's the kind of man God wanted. And it took 40 years to get him. Isn't that great? You see, that's the last guy in the world you would think that God needed at this point. But you see, it's God who's going to show the strength and the power and the might. He's the one that's going to deliver them from Egypt. But the one who's going to lead them and shepherd them has to be a man of this quality. And so he created one on the backside of the uh, of the desert. Moses assumed he knew what God wanted and how to get there. But he made a mess of things by doing it his way. And it's interesting to me how all the chronology works out, because when God... Uh, comes back to Moses 40 years later and gets him to come back to Egypt. He says, all the men who sought your life are dead. That's interesting. So he accomplished other things too. He, he couldn't come back before that 40 years because he would have been murdered by the guys that were out for his blood. It's interesting that there's another uh, guy in the scripture who goes through a similar experience. You know who it is? It's Paul. There's a, an intriguing verse in Galatians chapter 1 where Paul talks about his conversion and he just in passing says right after he was saved, he spent, he spent three years, you know where? <laughs> Arabia in the desert. Yeah. And I believe that's where God helped undo some of that Phariseeism and, and uh, pride that he went on to say that he now counted as nothing. And in fact, as worthless in, con in comparison to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, for these 40 years, we have nothing recorded. 
in Moses' life, other than at the very beginning he got married and he, and he had a son. And so we might assume nothing happened. A lot happened. God molded his man. And there's nothing recorded about those three years in Paul's life. And so we might assume nothing happened. No, a lot happened. God got him ready for the work he had for him to do. Jeremiah had to learn the same lesson. Listen to how he puts it. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent. I like that. Wait on the Lord. Don't rush ahead. Wait on him. Do it his way. Moses had to learn it. Paul had to learn it. Jeremiah had to learn it. Everybody has to learn it. God uses people in his purposes, but not the way we would expect him to usually. The only way to be a true success is to do things his way. And it applies to every area of life, from personal relationships to personal finances, from present actions to plans for the future. I've done both gone contrary and cooperated and i've seen both and doing it my way ends in disaster sometimes with lifetime consequences i've uh, dealt with a lot of uh, young people in my years now that i'm an old man and uh, one of the biggies of course is marriage and uh, i've seen many young people some who come and say, what is your counsel? And they mean it. They want to do what uh, the elders tell them. I think of one uh, young man in particular. Here's, here's a good example, a shining example. Uh, when he was just a brand new believer, he had an unsaved girlfriend. And he was shown from the scripture that uh, that was not in the Lord's will. And he made the tough decision and broke it off. God honored that and he, and he grew in the Lord. A few years later, uh, after he'd grown in the Lord, he uh, took a trip to uh, another land, uh, serving the Lord as a, in, a, in a short-term missionary kind of a, a situation. When he came back, he was convinced he'd met the girl of his dreams. But uh, as we began to talk and go through the scripture and, and talk about how it had happened and so on, uh, it was clear that that wasn't the case. And so this young man was willing, rather than run ahead of God, lay that aside and say, okay, I'll wait on the Lord. Years more later, when God was ready, he brought just the right woman into this man's life. And they've been married many, many happy years now, both serving the Lord more effectively than they did as two single people. That's the way... It should be done. And I've got stories uh, just the other way where people come up and uh, they're not seeking counsel. It's we've decided to do this. And I know Don and, and Howard and uh, Charlie and Eric and many others know stories of those, even in this assembly, who decided that's what God wanted and they were going to do it their way, no matter what the elders or even God thought about it. And it ended in disaster. It would, wouldn't it be nice, you know, when it comes to marriage for Christians, 
if we could just have a little reserve sign, you know, on the forehead, I'm reserved for so-and-so, you know, so you wouldn't have to go through all this. I don't know if that'd be good or not. Maybe it wouldn't, you know. But it applies to everything. I, it's, what's interesting to me is how someone can justify doing things their way with spiritual reasons. You know, I prayed about it. Or they quote circumstances. I remember one uh, young fellow who wanted to be a missionary. What could be more spiritual than that? But his elders all agreed that he wasn't ready. And that there were some things that needed to be dealt with in his life. What's a fella to do? You know what he did? He ended up at another church where they were more than happy to commence him under the mission field. I mean, that's the spiritual work. It can't be wrong. And the guy was essentially barren spiritually as a result. I know people who have moved, uh, not because God led them, but because they put their house up for sale and it sold. Therefore, it's God's will. You know, I applied for this job. They gave me an offer. Praise God. I've worked with believers who spent money they didn't have and got tens of thousands of dollars into debt. But there are many shining examples, too. And I know you know some. One of the first memory verses I learned was Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's a good one. Lean not on your own understanding. He's saying that's contrary typically to what God is understanding. Your own understanding, you lean on it, you're going to fall. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And then, you know what is going to happen? He shall direct your paths. That's a wonderful verse. And it works. So I think God put this episode in here in the life of Moses as a lesson for us. When we do things, uh, let's do them according to to God's way. Let's do it his way, not ours. Don't force it. Danger and heartache come when we take things in our own hands. When we decide what will happen, when it will happen, and how it will happen. In fact, sometimes we can sound kind of like this. I will do all my pleasure. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. Now, you know whose words those are? That's the Lord. That's right. He's the one that's supposed to talk like that, not me. If you want an example and a quote to follow... How about this one? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's the safe way. Let's pray. Father, we know you say that your ways are higher than our ways as the the heavens are above the earth and how true it is. Lord, we just look at the cross and it just staggers us as we see your love, your wisdom, your greatness, your power, your might, your righteousness, all displayed in that great, great event. And no one ever could have predicted that you would save our souls by doing it. You're a great and wonderful God, and we worship you for it. Lord, we recognize that our ways are usually 180 degrees the other direction. So we, we pray like the hymn says, Lord, teach me thy way. That's what we need. And Lord, we just commit ourselves afresh to, as your son prayed, doing your will and not our own. For we do pray it in Jesus' precious name.
Amen.